Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that early childhood nerd podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi, and uh, co host, the nerd co host, is Liz Nolasco. <laughs> Hi, Liz. Hello. And um, our guest today is Alex Winninghoff, who uh, wrote an article that we're going to discuss. The article is called Trauma by Numbers Warnings Against the Use of ACE Scores in Trauma Informed Schools. And I think this is going to be a surprise for a lot of listeners. Um, but Alex, what do you want folks to know about you before we jump into the article? Sure. My name's Alex, and I am a researcher and also an instructional coach at a comprehensive high school. Um, I'm finishing my dissertation work, which is a pretty comprehensive look at the history of the ACE public health campaign and ACE screening. All right. Um, I was definitely surprised when I read this article um, with different ways of thinking. Also, you know, a lot of times just around trauma in general, I have kind of instincts that I can't quite define or articulate. And then I read something. I'm like, yes, that's what I was. (laughs) So there were a couple of spots in here that that um, happened for me. So again, the article is called Trauma by Numbers. Warning Against the Use of ACE Scores in Trauma-Informed Schools, and um, it's open access on Bank Street College. Um, They have an occasional paper series that this comes from. So we're going to start with this quote from the article. Um, ACE and TI, trauma-informed, frameworks often seem to validate the struggles that many teachers witness in the lives of their students. There are elements that can hardly be argued with, TI frameworks recognize that students face significant hardships during childhood. They institutionally validate kindness, compassion, and flexible responses to student behaviors. They also establish a unifying message of hope and offer strategies to building student resilience, in quotes. These elements appear positive and aligned with social justice goals and ideologies, but there are also elements of TI frameworks that warrant critical consideration. There are, for instance, ethical concerns relating to requests for ACE disclosures from students, developing school ACE screening practices, or attaching individual ACE scores that have been reported to schools from an outside agency or clinic. So maybe first we need to define ACEs (laughs) before we go forward, and then we can jump into what some of those, that critical consideration might be. Okay, so stop me if I... If I go on, because actually ACEs is, is a very difficult concept to summarize, which mm-hmm. is part of the critique that is coming up for scholars internationally about the use of ACEs. So we'll start off by saying that the concept of adverse childhood experiences was leveraged in research prior to its adoption by the Centers for Disease Control and Kaiser Permanente Um, Beginning in 1991 with the first meeting between the two primary investigators of the study, uh, Robert Anda and Vincent Folletti, and the process of designing the ACE study occurred between 1991 to 93. Ultimately, the study was conducted between 96 and 97 
and or there were two waves prior to that and and the study was the first study was published in 1998 so in the first study um eight eight categories of adversity were selected but seven were published for the first um the first publication and then after the second wave the 10 ace uh, categories were selected and those are what we commonly understand to be the aces and the ace mm -hmm. score mm -hmm. zero through ten so aces are typically categories of abuse, neglect, and family dysfunction is the term that was used before. So the concept of family dysfunction is a broad territory and um, has been contested and reframed um, since publication of the ACE study between 1998 and 2014. The original investigators of the study published over 80 papers on ACEs, each paper centering around some territory of adversity and a correlation to biological, psychological, social, or cognitive dysfunction or deficiency. And from there, it also became this category that gained a lot of interest for policymakers, mm -hmm. for researchers across disciplines. And ultimately, we see that it came into education approximately around 2009 in, in the territory of research. Mm -hmm. And those of us who've been in any professional development for education over the last couple of decades are likely to have encountered um, ACEs in trauma-informed professional development or through research um, or through screening practices. Mm -hmm. And so it's become a pretty pervasive paradigm in education, but across discourses. Yeah. Um, and entered into public health, um, into welfare, into education, into clinical practices. Um, and so it really has traveled from the territory of theory to practice across um, institutions and, mm -hmm. and across discourses. Yeah. Um, I uh, Right now, I am a college instructor, uh, early childhood program chair. At a community college and i'm writing a new course that we just invented uh, about supportive interactions and guiding behavior but trauma is a big uh, piece of it so um uh you know aces is gonna ace scores are gonna be in there somewhere and um so i was reflecting on how i've how i've personally experienced it and it's mostly i when i was a child care center director it was kind of just trickling into the early childhood world it seems like um, yeah. It was mostly families, like maybe foster families were coming in and talking to me about ACE scores and their child's ACE scores. Um, and that's when I first started to to get familiar with it, learn about it a little bit. Um, but I want to ask Liz what what her experiences or, or thoughts have been around uh, if we don't if we don't uh, intentionally make time for Liz. She's too polite to butt in. So <laughs> I have to, I have to, I have to give her her Get on time. In, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've certainly become familiar or I became familiar with trauma informed schools probably about 10 years ago. And I know, you know, one of the big keynotes at the state conference for the IAUIC a while back was, specifically relating to trauma. And I think while I was reading this, it kind of brought me back to one of my first interactions with a new teacher who was really just learning about the 
these things for the first time. And she came back to me from the conference. It was the first time she'd attended and she was talking about all this stuff. And then she started like, name, name. She's like, why don't you talk to these parents to find out if these kids have experienced trauma? And I said, nope, we can just assume they have or we can just <laughs> respect them as people. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you have an instinct right away that this isn't necessarily information that we need to go seeking out um, that we can apply a what Alex Bennett, who um, is also a researcher in this field of equity and trauma informed practice, um, suggested that we apply a universal model, um, you know, and that's kind of one of our ways of thinking about trauma that, you know, what you might have noticed from my critique in the article is that one of my concerns is that there are more than 10 categories of childhood experiences that affect us throughout our life. And what is most significantly absent and what really hasn't aged well with the HA study is the lack of attention to the systemic factors that disproportionately create trauma in people's lives. And some of that is, of course, you know, racial trauma and the traumas that that come with being minoritized in society and that come from lack of resources. And and when we think about trauma, we need to think about it in a way that is far more complex than what exists alone in household environments. Um, there's a tendency, there's a, a, a common narrative in education to think that students are coming to school struggling because they're from those houses, mm-hmm. you know, from there's something going on in their family. Mm-hmm. There's that phrase. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't know what their family life. I is wonder like if there's something there's... going on at home. <laughs> yeah. We constantly go to that narrative. Um, and it's a narrative that lets educators and systems in their totality kind of off the hook. Yeah. If we're situated as this outside entity, something that we're not responsible for perpetuating, not only does it let us off that off the hook, but it also situates us in a savior mm-hmm. uh, pose. Yeah. You know, where, yeah. you know, and so I, I think that if there's, a message about the problem of ACE is one of those key messages is um, that the categories themselves are extremely limited. Um, within those categories, there's quite a lot of variation that's substantial. There's a big difference between parents being divorced um, and experiencing, you know, more than a decade of ongoing pervasive abuse. Right. right. Um, and I was looking at the list last night to see what my score would be. And I, you know, I hit about a seven (laughs) Um, for my total life, you know, but like my parents got divorced when I was 10, but it was a pot. It was a good thing for a while. Like, you know what I mean? Like divorce doesn't always mean trauma. That was one of the things that came to mind for me thinking about each of these categories could be so many different things. And we've tried to oversimplify it so that it's easily measurable. Yeah. And, and simple answers are 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 great because they make us believe that there's simple solutions. Uh-huh. You know, um, a lot of people and myself included, when I first encountered the ACE study, I was a teacher at the time. I was a first year teacher, like everybody who encounters the ACE, you know, paradigm, you're, you're looking at it and trying to calculate your ACE score first. Mm-hmm. That's just our, our, our nature, you mm-hmm. know? And um, I remember 
you know, finding out about the study, thinking about students that I had, and just like that uh, section that you read, you know, there's that sense that, oh, we've, Eureka, we have found the answer, you know, but what is missing oftentimes in this field of ACE-based trauma-informed practice is that we don't move past screening. What is the next step, you know, what, where are the suggestions for um, what we do institutionally. And oftentimes those answers are building resilience and operating with kindness and flexibility. These to me as an educator are best practices, right? <laughs> Things These we should be me, doing anyway. Yeah. As a human being. Yeah. And that's Elizabeth's human being kind practices. Of, yeah. Kind of what you were saying when you were like, we, we just treat them as if we, we just kind of assume that it's there and, and put that into practice. Right. Right. And we, and we can't allow this idea of building resilience to be um, one directional. Like we pour in resilience to them. We give them resilience. <laughs> and then if they don't take it, then that's on the aces. That's their stuff. Yes. Uh-huh. And then what yeah. does that say in terms of developing a narrative that borders on determinism? Okay. Because historically we can point to these master concepts, these master pathologies that have been used and weaponized through policy, through institutions to screen and identify people who are regarded as on a trajectory to be biologically, psychologically, socially, cognitively less fit. Okay. And when we put that in a territory of of documenting through screening, whether it be through schools, through medical records, what we're doing is we're stamping on a record a probabilistic model that puts us on a trajectory toward identifying people as risky. Mm -hmm. And what that risk is situated in is not just a risk that this student won't learn, okay? In a healthcare setting, this is a, a person who is considered to be risky. What does that mean for insurance companies? for instance, mm-hmm. to have a high ACE score. Um, if police have access to an ACE score, and we know that ACEs are associated with greater likelihood of criminality, um, delinquency, antisocial behavior, um, how how is a police officer going to interpret an ACE score? Or how could having that score on records identify somebody as a threat to others, Mm -hmm. you know? So when we think about public health, we're thinking not just about individual human beings um, and what we can identify about them based on the score. We're thinking about how ACEs is becoming this kind of territory Mm -hmm. of identifying a section of the population on a spectrum of relative biological, psychological, social, and cognitive deficiency. And though it's not technically deterministic, it does border very closely with the kind of backdoor out being resilience and probability. Mm -hmm. That's what saves ACE discourse from being firmly deterministic. But there have been internationally and in the United States, several scholars who have uh, focused on that proximity to determinism and and Mm -hmm. leveraged critiques against the methodological and conceptual problems with the ACE paradigm for yeah. those reasons. So I've been make, making notes while I'm listening of things I want you to go back and talk a little bit sure. more in depth about. <laughs> um, but before I do that, Liz, do you have a any question more. or any comment in here before we? Oh, um, I, I was just going to say that I think there's also alongside that determinism, there's this idea of 
pity that can go along with educators knowing a child's ACE score, right? Mm -hmm. Or having that idea of what, it, it kind of ties into that savior complex that you were talking about, right? Yeah. But this idea of just, oh, yeah, you don't know any better or, you know, you can't do any better, which just mm -hmm. is, I, I think it's so detrimental to humanizing people and their whole life experiences when you have this number and you say, oh, and you kind of take this view, this approach with them of of pity rather than support and treating them with basic human kindness and dignity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think about that a lot, too, in terms of educators having access to that score and possibly thinking, oh, well, this student has reading difficulties or math difficulties or so many struggles at home that, you know, it that's my way of making sense that they're not going to have access to this curriculum. You know, so that's part that's part of that idea of, you know, what is the responsibility of educators. Well, we work to educate everybody. We work to open possibilities for everybody. Mm -hmm. And when we think that there's a problem outside that we have no control over um, that causes this student before us to um, have so many cognitive complexities based on a single signifier of an A score, um that is that is a way that we can um identify the problem is out of our control and therefore not our responsibility mm -hmm. to address mm -hmm. that's that le that was one of the things i was going to ask you to talk more about was the you know we talked about that there must be something going at a, on at home bit and how that's sort of problematic and uh, i wanted to come back to why is that why could that be a problem and you just sort of hit on that both of you with it well then it's something outside of my control this is happening at home and if if the parents won't change there's nothing I can do about this problem um and and whether it's a conscious decision or not we do sort of release ourselves from the responsibility yeah. and walk into any American school I'm going to after I talk to you <laughs> um and I talk to students every day and we know that trauma is absolutely going on in our schools. Mm -hmm. We would like to believe that it's not, and we'd like to have an image of schools as being these always safe spaces for students that we're, you know, that we protect students. But when we step back and we look at the school system that we're in, we know that schools are sites of bullying. We know that 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 teachers may come into this profession prepared to to do their best but there are a number of ideological and political differences that play out we know that that can be a source of trauma we know that racism exists in our schools deeply at the level of the curriculum at the level of interaction at the level of systems and and barriers that that are created that students interact with and that is an ongoing trauma we know that schools are sites of school shootings. We know that police officers exist in our schools, and that can be a source of, of triggers and trauma for students. And so as much as we would like to imagine that schools are going to be these healing-centered places, we have a great deal of work to do before we can say that schools are just not traumatizing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. by putting teachers in a position where they would request information about a student through screening practices um, that really runs counter to clinical 
um, guidelines for supporting and addressing trauma, you mm -hmm. know, for, for anybody who's been in a therapeutic environment and come to a therapist with their own experiences of trauma, that isn't usually an introduction conversation, right? Yeah. That takes time to build trust and to feel connected. And so the capacity to take that away from trauma survivors, you know, to, to assume that you can cross that boundary with people who have been traumatized, mm -hmm. that can be a reenactment of trauma to take away someone's right to their privacy, uh -huh. you know, take away their right to disclose on their own terms with the people that they identify as safe. So, yeah, yeah. Pause and this is a Liz pause. No, no, sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, so I, what I, uh, you know, you went much more in, in depth than, than, this is going to sort of sound maybe oversimplified, but, and probably I'm going to get some criticism for this from folks who are listening. But as I've been looking about trauma, reading about trauma and trauma informed trauma responsive practices and thinking about ACE scores now, I have never seen anything that says this could also be happening with teachers. Like, but, but I know that I have been in early childhood programs. And there has been verbal abuse. There has been emotional abuse. There's been um, toxic stress kinds of situations, but there's nothing that I've read so far that says it's always at home and families or parents. There's yeah. nothing about how this could be happening in our programs. There are outstanding researchers who I'm very fortunate to be in a research community with um who have talked about some of those elements of mm -hmm. the trauma informed movement um and i want to hold up uh simona golden and addison duane in particular who are two fantastic research uh, researchers also alex finette uh who i mentioned earlier but they've they are doing work and and have been doing work on the need to recognize that uh, trauma is is very much a pervasive force within our schools, perpetuated in schools. And, um, you know, that can, we have to understand that, that trauma isn't something that is always intended, but it's a reality that right. is pervasive. And there's quite a lot that we don't see as educators that happens within our schools. And then when you scale out and you look at the broader social and systemic factors, mm -hmm. then, you know, we certainly need to understand that, that um, it, it, it's, it's pervasive. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, I would really suggest that, you know, your, your listeners, viewers uh, mm -hmm. would take a look at some of the research from Simona Golden, Addison, Addison Duane, um, uh, and some other folks who I've got a very long list yeah. of would be happy to send along some links. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We can include that kind of stuff in the episode yeah. description and stuff. If you want to share. Yeah. I feel like this great. is certainly a growing um, community of researchers who are looking at the need for equity centered trauma informed practices, um, looking at uh, systemic uh, trauma informed practices mm -hmm. and challenging the limitations of situating trauma as some outside factor that's out of our control because it's very much in our control what we do at the systems level and in our practice mm -hmm. 
um, in addressing uh, the ways that trauma uh, works within the context of school communities. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the other things that I wanted to go back to a little bit, and it's come up a couple times now, is the savior pose or the savior complex. And in there's one part of the article where you talk about um, this this discussion of A scores being value laden. And mm -hmm. I think that so so why? Because I think a lot most people who go into education, early childhood, elementary, whatever level, are like doing it, are doing it because they, um, you know, they want to save children. Essentially, they want yeah. to, you know, we got like I've said many times. I'm I went into this so that I could be what I didn't have, you know, and so so there's a a value. I think, in that, but it can also become really problematic. And, Absolutely. And that's yeah. what I what I thought about as I read parts of this yeah. where you talk about the value laden piece. Sure. I mean, it's it's a really uncomfortable conversation that educators and particularly white educators need mm -hmm. to have with themselves about what their intention is for engaging in this work. This is a this is a profession that requires a broad skill set and it requires that you intentionally reflect and put your ego aside in this work. And when you're taking a savior pose, which is, you know, uh, one of those narrative that, that really, you know, is locked into a lot of education, um, you know, and, and what that does is it's, it's a way of extending these, these patterns of thinking and these practices that situate, you know, your role in a position of superiority and also come from an orientation of believing that children need to be saved mm -hmm. from from their families <laughs> and that really is is counter to working with families um and it has a very long history and um you know we we need to regard ourselves as being partners with families um, and partners with our communities. And when we look at something like the ACE score, which really reinvigorates some of those narratives, you know, we need to think more critically. For instance, let's take a look at one of the ACE scores um, about having, uh, or one of the ACE categories about having a family member who has been, um, in some cases, it's framed as uh, been imprisoned or incarcerated um, in other publications. Um, you'll see that it's reflected as has engaged in criminal behavior. <laughs> um, there's flexibility <laughs> in that. Um, you know, consider who in our country is targeted by policing. Mm -hmm. Consider the injustices of our justice system and why it is that those disproportionalities exist in, for instance, Black and Latino, Latino, Latinx communities, um, impoverished communities. What does that say about systemic harm? You know, the idea that we would stop at um, putting our orientation toward, you know, if somebody in your family is incarcerated, then that is an individual problem when we know absolutely that this is a much broader com a conversation and a, a much bigger systemic issue that we're encountering. So those are just one of the ways that the A score creates disproportionalities that um, is assumed to be familial based, but is, is certainly 
um, a much broader scope issue. Mm -hmm. I I thought that was just the the scope of this. I found when you cited um, one of the critiques about the absence of poverty in the ACE framework doesn't stem from neutral scientific calculation or accidental omission. Um, I mean, what an absolutely wild decision to make. (laughs) And we, we definitely should recognize that impoverishment itself is, is not always a a experience of trauma, nor is parental divorce, you know, nor, nor are some of the, the complexities and the, the, the layers of ACEs, Um, you know, but we should pay attention to why it is some categories were framed and why some categories aren't and why it might be beneficial to situate risks in a behavioral analysis. That's been a long-standing paradigm of the public health movement, um, arguably arguably before the 1970s, but certainly uh, in the mid-1970s, the paradigm of, of prevention and wellness promotion took off. And this has been a, um, it's been called an evolution of that public health movement to further situate risk and and negative health outcomes as a matter of behaviors, as Mm -hmm. a matter of the environment that you're in, instead of scaling out and looking at the social and systemic factors that create hierarchies in our, in our, uh, in our health system, you know, Mm -hmm. another, another way that we could think about risk factors is in access to healthcare you know, or racial health disparities, or in access to healthy foods, um, in access to health, healthy environments. There are other ways that negative health outcomes are distributed um, across our population in ways that um, harm people, but situating it as a matter of family origin and, and family exposure alone is a long-standing tradition of public health and not one with uh, a positive history. Mm-hmm. There's a, a story that you tell in the article of, um, I can't find where the origin was, so you might have to help me, but it's a teacher, like a high school teacher showing PET scan results. Yeah, that was a, Lincoln... what your brain looks like. Yeah. Yeah, um, I've seen that on more than a few occasions, but that was presented in the documentary Paper Tigers, which was um, filmed in Washington State. I think it was in 2006. Uh Um, And no doubt that was a Mm well-intentioned teacher. Yeah, comparing the healthy, healthy, quote unquote, brain to the abused brain. And then he ends his his conversation with the students with essentially, what are you going to do to change this? What are you going to do to break the cycle? And that comes to mind when you're talking about how we need to have a systemic uh, view uh, of yeah. of some of this. Like he he left those students feeling like, I feel like if you don't know how to break the cycle, then something continues to be wrong with you instead yeah, of I'm- a review of why what's causing these these adverse experiences. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's not a a deep analysis of the ways that that our social systems and structures are are placing students in that particular classroom at harm and mm-hmm. creating inequalities that are no doubt generations deep mm-hmm. you know the inequalities um that might be generations deep are erased from that conversation and what 
comes to the surface is only individual choices. It's part of this rugged individualist kind of neoliberal mm-hmm. narrative mm-hmm. Um, that all outcomes are the choice of the individual and and the the product of individual actors. And, um, you know, that message of supposed hope isn't very hopeful and hope alone <laughs> yeah. doesn't doesn't do much in terms of material outcomes and so and it also there's a a message of turning students against their families you know yeah um and those particular brain scans um are of a romanian orphan um and those have been weaponized mm-hmm. um in numerous many yeah. ways in presenting this research because it's immediately it'll immediately grab your attention um but and hook your emotion yeah you know it, it, it's we, we've already sort of lost control of our frontal lobe just because we we see those those very graphic brain scans um yeah and, and i wonder what seeing that does in terms of the students feeling of their locus of control right obviously we're mm-hmm. saying there are massive systemic barriers there are massive systemic issues that have led to a number of these negative experiences these traumas but I mean, sitting there looking at this, you can see a kid thinking, well, that's, that's it. I'm broken and there's no hope for me, you know, and no amount of pouring in resilience and whatever else we're trying to give them in terms of what they can do to change this is going to alter that image of themselves now is just mm-hmm. permanently, you know, unfixable. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, to what extent does that become a self-perpetuating story you know to what extent might a young person encounter an ace score and why wouldn't that lesson stand out for you Mm -hmm. and and carry some weight and what might you project into your future and how might you situate that on this very brief notion outside of a, a broader context you know that says this is the likely end for you you know, you're likely to encounter all these health problems. You're likely to um, to be a criminal. You're, I mean, the, the list is expansive mm-hmm. of correlations between ACEs and negative outcomes. If you mm-hmm. give me a negative outcome, I, am, I can likely find you a body of research that cites ACEs as being a, a root origin of, of that problem. Mm-hmm. And so it's a powerful paradigm um and has massive potential to be weaponized and is being weaponized Mm -hmm. in a number of ways but when we think about that on the individual level what is that what is the effect on an individual person um yeah it it is it can be a narrative that that becomes Mm self-perpetuating excuse me um oh i just lost my thought it's all right. It's gone. It's That's gone. Um, so you, I mean, you've used the word, you've used the word weaponized several times. Will you talk a little bit about what you mean when you talk about this, this idea being weaponized or this process? Yeah. So again, um, I'd like to say that there are scholars out there who in the same issue that I was published in for this, um, Simona Gold, Golden wrote, um, wrote a paper about the weaponization mm-hmm. of the trauma-informed movement. And I'd like to point readers toward that for yeah. sure. Um, but what we're thinking about when we're talking about this idea of weaponizing ACE scores, 
part of it happens in terms of those dynamics between teachers in classrooms, just having access to that ACE score. Um, we know that that allows us to tell a story that, well, this student who I maybe haven't even met yet um, coming into my classroom um, is likely to have a number of behavioral problems, is likely to have mental health problems, is, mm -hmm. is likely to have learning problems, you know, literacy problems, all kinds of cognitive issues. Yeah. If we presuppose any story about a student, then that's oftentimes the story that we see. And if we see that story, we're engaging in a dynamic where we're potentially reinforcing those ideas for ourselves, for that student. And so that's a form of weaponization. Mm -hmm. But then when we scale out and we think about the ways that just asking someone, just becoming a system, you know, as educators who feel entitled to expand our jurisdiction into the homes and lives of families. And we're entitled to ask about the very intimate details of people's lives, whether they're present or past, um, you know, whether or not we have a relationship for them or with them, whether, whether or not we have material solutions or whether or not we're going to engage in ongoing support that's a level of weaponization to weaponize the relationship that teachers need to build in order for that relationship to be pedagogical. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's a way of creating damage in that relationship. Um, if we just assume that we're entitled and we haven't created trust and mm -hmm. um, it expands our role and it it shifts or complicates those boundaries. Um, you know, schools have long policed families and particularly black families. Yeah. And, you know, we need to be cognizant of the ethical issues that come with collecting data on families um, and what the nature of our role is and how we how we should expand that. So mm -hmm. that's a piece of it. And then a yeah. scores as a way of identifying pre-criminality um, or pre-delinquency, um, you know, or, or any number of, of problems, uh, using ACE scores to predict risk behaviors and, and the potentials of that for insurance companies. Mm -hmm. you, know, you should know that nobody's more excited about ACE scores and collecting ACE data than every major insurance company. <laughs> um, and the fact yeah. that the first ACE study was conducted by Kaiser Permanente health appraisals should, you know, we should be aware of uh -huh. why that would be interesting data and why it would be necessary to frame ACEs as being entirely a matter of individual circumstances and environments. Yeah, uh, that, that hadn't even occurred to me that the insurance side, the health side, um, until I was reading this and thinking about what you've shared here in the article. So, you know, I think it's also really important for us to understand. Sorry about all these rainbows everywhere. <laughs> they're in. They're in. Trying to apologize for rainbows. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. This is a rainbow-friendly show. Here. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> Rainbow-friendly household. Um, so, um, you know, we need to understand that Aces does not have to be firmly deterministic to operate as though it potentially is. Yeah. We can't really measure resilience. There are scholars who have tried to create 
resilience indicators. Yeah. The idea of resilience is a soft concept that we don't firmly have an idea of what that means or how that's actualized. Mm -hmm. um, there have been instances where, you know, Dr. Vincent Paletti, one of the uh, primary architects of, of the ACE study, um, has referenced people who were highly successful in their lives and who had high ACE scores and who he recognizes as still not being resilient, you know, because it affected their lives that they had these histories of abuse. So what resilience is and how we can measure it and how we distinguish, how we distinguish who is resilient enough, um, we don't really have a, a measure for that. Mm -hmm. um, and as much as ACEs may not be constructed as entirely deterministic, the ACE score is static. If it's on your records, oh, sure. it is static. It yeah. doesn't matter how resilient you are. It does not erase what your records say your yeah. ACE score is. Yeah. And so it creates its own sort of determinism. Um, and it's a social health determinant. Um, and it's recorded as such. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a whole other. Right. I think resilience topic. has become... Uh, another buzzword in early childhood and in, in education in general, yeah. but the idea being sort of nobody's saying this part out loud necessarily, but we can do whatever we want because children are resilient. We don't have to look for solutions because we can just put this on the shoulders of children and their resilience will bring them through yeah. whatever garbage we've created for them. <laughs> Yeah, it's a feel-good word. Yeah. Um, but what it actually means is subject to a whole lot of interpretation. Uh -huh. um, and it doesn't point us toward our own responsibility to address the conditions um, that students and, and young people need to be resilient mm -hmm. yeah. uh, against, you know? Yeah. It just presumes that there's this catastrophe that we all are constantly recovering from and can bounce back from but it's it's certainly an inadequate concept mm -hmm. um and and also demands equal critical attention mm -hmm. so i think it's so interesting that range of so-called negative outcomes i mean it kind of you have to ask what makes something a neg negative outcome i mean obviously criminality antisocial traits those are not ideal right but if we're looking at <laughs> A broader society is an individual's quote unquote school failure if they're still able to build a happy life if they're still able to you know find meaning mm -hmm. how many adults how you in your life who have no negative outcomes yeah you know um this idea of negative outcomes i think in general we need to pay attention to these very broad concepts you know, we can agree that things that are negative are bad. Okay. <laughs> things that are negative are bad, right? Um, and when we just are able to say, like, this idea, this concept of ACEs, which is, you know, by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente, 10 categories of abuse, dysfunction, and, and neglect. But more broadly, the research shows that the ACE signifier has changed dramatically and has been taken up and reformed um, by researchers expanded in some instances you know impoverishment is included or poverty is included um, in some instances there are 
pieces that are that are taken out or argued against um you know and if 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 aces can mean everything what does it mean what is that <laughs> container and if we can yeah. just take things out and put new things in um it challenges the the validity of the of the concept um and you know there have been researchers again researchers internationally this is an international critique there's it's an international movement mm. um it's been taken up by the world health organization um the ace iq the ACE international questionnaire is used by researchers uh, across across nations um and so it's been a site of international critique and one researcher in particular or a group of researchers in the United Kingdom, um, uh, Susan Susan White and Rosalind Edwards mm-hmm. um, and Val Giles wrote a paper about aces being a chaotic concept, yeah. um, and you know argued from a position of the social sciences that there are methodological and conceptual problems with mm-hmm. the ace paradigm, um, and so it's easy for us to say it's science. Well, (laughs) you know, we understand that science is, um, you know, we're, this is, this is not just a matter of, uh, blood, you know, checking blood pressure. This Mm -hmm. is a concept that is malleable, flexible, soft around the edges, changes, expands, shrinks. Um, and so it isn't an exact precise framework that we can point to and say that we've arrived on precisely what ACEs are. Yeah. Yeah. And when something has that much power to be weaponized and isn't conceptually clear, uh-huh. it demands a high degree of of critique and awareness and sure. the ethics of how it's being used. Yeah. Yeah. I was I thought Liz was gonna say something. So I'm gonna ask you now, Liz, are there things in the article that you wanted to to bring in that we haven't touched on yet? Um, you know, I think I mean, I, I guess what really stood out to me, in addition to all of the other hundred incredible, I know there was a lot of highlighting in this one about right. I mean, just the idea of how we respond, how we create these, you know, so-called trauma-informed schools, right, and how they're kind of there's a lot of really fuzzy research on that. So um, my. Uh, my thesis was in social and emotional learning, and I looked a lot at um, building compassion in schools, right? And so I was looking at all these different published curricula and all the really bad research used to validate them. Oh boy! <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I, and I think we can't ignore that if we're talking about trying to use these, you know, so-called research-based best practices that aren't valid, that are bad research, that are cherry picked and just wildly inadequate for all children Mm -hmm. and if we're knowing that these children there are a subset of children who are experiencing ongoing traumas it it just continues to build that inequity right because there are children who are Mm -hmm. doing so great at the kindness curriculum and then there are those kids who just aren't (laughs) (laughs) and when kindness and compassion and citizenship become test scores yeah absolutely yeah yeah we're we're really good at commodifying if it can be sold we want to sell it and we're going to figure out a way to sell this um this idea or this this buzzword for sure 
and and that word commodity is really important when we're we're thinking about aces mm-hmm. um you know sel has expanded and to some degree you know necessarily we need to find ways to um address the the multitude of problems and crises that our students and our and the families that we work mm-hmm. with in our communities are are faced with and that's a legitimate response but when we bring it down to the level of standardized numbers and standardized curriculum and see schools as places that should police behaviors and um produce a certain kind of student who will respond to life in a, a certain kind of way and have a certain set of morals, then we need to be attentive to the ways that that is potentially overreaching. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do we set the moral bar? Do we do we establish the moral frameworks for our society? Is there any way that that can be culturally responsive? Um, those are some of the big questions that folks in the world of social emotional learning research are are wrestling with and i'd also like to point out that while vincent folletti one of the original investigators is still very much um you know uh, an advocate for ace screening robert anda the other primary investigator is um has come out and and written a paper not with vincent folletti's name on it um who and he argues against ACE screening mm-hmm. and has explained that its use as an epidemiological tool was not intended to be scaled down to the individual level and it doesn't reflect likely individual outcomes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not what epidemiological tools are are built for. Mm-hmm. And so as much as he had used ACE screenings and been an ACE screening advocate for much of his career in 2020. Um, he did publish a paper with two of his long-standing um, research partners advocating against it. And I'd be happy to link that article. There's also yeah. an excellent presentation that's available on YouTube from Robert Anda explaining why um aces uh can be taken up as uh he uses the the phrase accrued uh accrued measure of trauma okay that's also reflected in his paper so even at the level of those who the concept originated from there's some backpedaling or some uh restatement of the purpose of Uh ace that is very much reflecting on Sorry, do you think then that there could be a use for aggregate ACE data from a from a school district or from regions? Do you think that that is something that might be useful? Or do you think it's it really just comes back to that idea of best practices in teaching are being flexible, being compassionate, being reasonable? I mean, what, what would that information give us? And what would we do with that information? Why is that necessary for us to have that information? And what other information or stories are we shutting down by making a decision about exactly what categories of exposures we are prioritizing, you know? Um, and so I would say I'm I'm not a fan of the use of ACE score data or the collection of ACE score data or the use of ACE score data, certainly at the school level. Um, I I don't believe that that is the way that we should be marking or measuring or identifying or conceptualizing trauma. There's no doubt that those ACE categories 
can be experiences that lead to trauma, but it's really important to understand the difference between a experience that may lead to trauma and the experience of trauma. So the category from which that possible trauma derived is not the same thing as as a trauma that exists and 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 lives with a person and that they experience according to them and and their own socially situated uh circumstance their their culture their identity the degree to which it's affected them the degree to which they conceptualize healing um and and so i don't i believe that having that data as a system you know if we say that aces are not deterministic but we hold on to that number there's an internal conflict mm -hmm. in that idea if you can't get away from being identified by that ACE score, no matter how much healing you've done, no matter how much resilience you have, then that internal conflict is is something we really need to attend to and, and be aware of. Mm -hmm. So my answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're we coming up on an hour and I could, I could uh, keep listening, Alex, if I had more time. I kept forgetting I was a podcast host. I was just so <laughs> I know, interested I in what you were. It made me so comfortable. What you were saying. <laughs> um, so I think, I, is there any last, last thought that you would throw out there before I hit stop here? Yeah, what I want people to leave with is not a sense that there's nothing that we can do. If yeah. we don't use ACEs, that there's nothing that we can do. We do have a lot of questions still about how we address students and families that are struggling, but some of the answers are not modern answers. They're the ones that we know. Mm. It is always a good idea to approach people with positive regard and kindness and belief in who they are you know, and, and to care deeply about, about the lives that they live and, and what they need from us and how we as a school can provide opportunities for them. That's always good practice. And we mm -hmm. don't need to know and apply quantitative data to everything in students' lives in order to do that work. In fact, that might that that might be an opposition to showing care and humanity that reduction to a number when we're talking about people's complex experiences might ultimately be dehumanizing and so the goal is to not not to step away from humanity but to step into humanity and to reject dehumanizing practices that can cause systemic harm and i would argue that collecting ace data is one of those practices mm -hmm. All right. Thank you. I love it when we talk about humanity on the show. Care and humanity. Yes. Uh, an ongoing theme. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for thank um, you. the article and the conversation and whatever links you want to send me, I'll put, I'll put in here. Cause Absolutely. I think, I think this is going to spark some real curiosity in folks who are listening usually, or watching. It usually does. And I, I think that that's a good thing. It's okay for us to engage in discussion and have dissensus and you know uh -huh. ultimately come into you know best practices and work together mm -hmm. i appreciate it yeah yeah i'm happy and to share you. resources or talk to anyone perfect um do you do you want to share any contact do you have a website do you have i should have a website no that's uh, okay i i just wanted i thought oh it didn't occur to me to yeah. ask that so if you do we'd yeah we'd folks plug can in here, but... 
Yeah, folks can certainly reach out to me um, through winninghoffa at gmail.com. Uh, um, and that would probably be the best way to find uh -huh. me. You can find me on Academia um, and ResearchGate and LinkedIn uh -huh. as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Please feel free to reach out to me with any questions yeah. at all. Yeah. And um, oh, go ahead. I'm still, I'm working on, um, I'm, I'm getting ready to complete my, uh, dissertation work on this uh -huh. to publish. And so I'll be happy to share, um, research that I've done along the way as well. Yeah. yeah and I just want to, um, direct people once more to, um, Bank Street, uh, so it's Bank Street Occasional Paper Series. They have a lot of really great open access scholarly articles. And uh, like, as you said, this is part of a an issue about, uh, yes. this is one article in an issue about trauma and uh, ACE, ACE scores. So. I also could plug my workshop that I'm giving in October at Lewis sure. and Clark um, College. Um, and this is kind of a a drop at the end but it's on the eugenics of aces oh. uh, where i draw parallels between <laughs> liz and i are there <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so i'll i'll draw parallels that i've done in my uh -huh. work between the the continuities between yeah. historic public health movements the use of uh signifiers that are broad and interpretable and shifting and how those have been weaponized mm -hmm. um, in the u.s and beyond yeah that that's pretty powerful that I think. So thank you for sharing that. Thanks Liz for being here yeah, thank you both. <laughs> and for joining in and thanks everybody for listening to another episode of that early childhood nerd. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.